0: This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. Welcome to episode number one of the UU Perspective, where we provide weekly interviews with today's most inspiring Unitarian Universalists. Again, I'm Sharon Merrill, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and a member of the Unitarian Universal Society of Cleveland. This show is going to focus on UU sharing their involvement in the community and the impact that they are making through their passion to make a difference. You'll hear what they've discovered in their journey, what they've done and how they've made a difference, and the impact they hope to see for the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations from your fellow UUs around the world. All right, our guest today is Rena Shear, who is a member of the UU Society of Cleveland, where she is RE director And she is also in seminary and actually finishing that up this year. And she is the facilitator of the Beloved Conversations. Uh, there has been two groups that have gone through so far, and hopefully a third group will go through, third round in the future here. And after this inspiring conversation with her, I certainly am uh, wanting to commit to tending that uh, beloved conversations round. So let's get on with it. And here is Arena. Okay, you use. Let's get started. I am simply thrilled to introduce my guest today, Rena Shear, and I've given you guys just a little overview about Rena. So, I want to take a minute and Rena, tell us about yourself and about the role you play inside the UU community because, you know, we want to get to know you a little bit better.
1: Well, first, hi Sharon and thank you for inviting me to be on the show. You bet. I think that you know, I've would been a Unitarian Universalist for 14 years, and I'm currently, I've had really a wonderful journey with this faith. I grew up Presbyterian and was very, very involved in my church and had a very positive experience as a young person in in an organized religion. And then, like so many of us, I went away to college and um, floated away a bit and in my 20s relocated to... New York and was really looking for a faith community, and I found a wonderful faith community at a, a large church called Riverside Church, which was very open and affirming, and it was really a new experience for me to be involved in a church that was so diverse um, just and so welcoming in terms of the LGBTQ community, um, diverse in terms of ethnicity, and so involved in the community. Later, I moved outside of New York City and had a very hard time connecting with any any church that filled this need for activism in me, and my husband and I literally were reading a book about different denominations and learned about Unitarian Universalism, and we went to the UU Church in Princeton, New Jersey, where we were living, and I was just immediately hooked. We had two small children. We were really looking for a safe home. I immediately started being a volunteer teacher. We then relocated to Virginia, and I was very involved in my church there and eventually became staff, the director of religious education. We relocated to Cleveland, and I'm currently the the director of lifespan faith development here at the Unitarian Universalist Society of Cleveland, and in all of, of that, that growth, I went through a discernment process with some of my mentors who were current ministers and decided to enter seminary. So actually, I'm now in my last semester of seminary with plans um, to become an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister, and throughout all of that, I've um, I've met people with so many different viewpoints and one of the things that I think really draws me to Unitarian Universalism is the sense that, that we, are, we are free to learn together. Uh, there is no, no set orthodoxy and so this companioning of each other as we, as we seek to develop our own truth, um, I'm really drawn to that aspect of our faith.
0: Wow that's wonderful I like that free to learn together that's great and and what is it you you mentioned there was a book you guys read that drew you towards it you know, um well we we've read many
1: many many books um it was it was actually i mean just like a, a dictionary of of religions, I mean, just like looking at different denominations. And I had never, I mean, I was in my 30s, and I had never heard of Unitarian Universalism before. And so we were just looking up different denominations. You know, it was clear that I had outgrown Presbyterianism. Um, it gave me a wonderful foundation, but I just wasn't there anymore. And um, that's how we learned about it. This was before laptops and, you know, all that Sharon. (laughs) I'm dating myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We didn't have an iPad. We were literally looking at a book.
0: So you're in seminary right now. And how are you doing that? Are you doing that like online?
1: No, I I don't do it online. Mm -hmm. There are are two really great UU seminaries. One is in Chicago, Meadville Lombard, and one is out in Berkeley, Star King. I'm um, very interested in Interfaith work and community ministry, and so I made the decision. I'm actually at a Methodist seminary. I'm at the Methodist Theological School of Ohio, which is in Delaware, Ohio. So I commute once or twice a week and take classes. Um, I'm also, I think, because my background is, a, is in education, and I'm very drawn to um, learning in real time with folks and being able to engage and debate and have have a community and. That was very important to me. So I made the decision to really do a lot of commuting to get through seminary.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I get that.
1: I I couldn't move to Chicago or California. So that was, (laughs) I decided to do a lot of driving.
0: There you go, that makes sense. Well, that's great. And let's, um, I'd like to get into, I'm very curious about your involvement in the Beloved Conversations and how that started uh, inside the UU Society and kind of the impacts it's been having.
1: Yes, the Beloved Conversations program um, is is a a program that I feel very strongly about. It was developed by um, a a dear friend of mine who I actually was in graduate school with in New York City, um, Dr. Mark Hicks, and he currently is the director of the Sophia Lyons Foss Center at Meadville Lombard Seminary. So he he teaches at one of our UU seminaries, and he developed a curriculum to really help help our UU congregations talk about privilege and race. Um, I'm I'm sure many many of your listeners will know that our denomination is um, primarily white, and one of one of the issues that our congregation is is working on very strongly, and our denomination as a whole is is learning to um, become a place places of worship that are open and affirming to all different kinds of people. Um, We have made great strides with the lesbian, gay, trans community, and uh, I think it's a goal of many, many congregations to become more open and affirming to people of color. And so the Beloved Conversations Program is a way to help congregations in small groups do some very introspective work about how that might happen. Um, It's an eight-week curriculum, and what happens is that Dr. Hicks comes to congregations around the country, and he does a very intensive weekend immersion where using the arts and using small groups and using um, journaling, people really begin to look at the very real dynamic of racism in American life. Then with facilitators, we go back and we have curriculum-driven small groups where we start looking at how we learned our ideas about racism and who we are, what kind of communities we grew up in, um, how issues of diversity were handled in our families of origin, and then we begin to really do an audit of the congregation in terms of... um, what is our music like? Is our music diverse? Um, have we done any training for our greeters and our welcoming committee? When we look at the structure of our board members or committee chairs, are there people of color or is it primarily um, white folks who have leadership and, and positions of authority in our congregation? It's, um, for me, it's very deep spiritual work as well. Um, it can be very painful works, Um, many white people um, are dealing with their issues of privilege that perhaps they haven't seen or understood or noticed before, and I'm very happy to report that about 25% of our congregations, we've had two cohorts now that have gone through the Beloved Conversations process, and I'm very happy to report that 25% of our congregations have now gone through this. Our new called minister is a minister of color, Reverend Joe Cherry, and um, I think he's he's found us very valuable for the congregation as well.
0: What do you see um, as people have gone through this? Uh, the insights that they've come up with—that
1: is a great question. I can tell you that when. The group evaluates it, and I think some of the most powerful lessons that they have learned is um, that the, the burden that those who are less privileged face are burdens that we who have privilege can help with, one, one by by stating that, yes. There are a lot of things that are unfair, and two, what can I do to change it? I think that if you would talk to many of the people who have gone through the Beloved Conversations program, they would say, "I notice things really differently now, especially if, if they're white." Um, I notice that that when I drive by a car that's been pulled over by the cop, I notice that many many times it's a person of color who's been pulled over. Um, one person in our group said. I am so much more aware of how people defer to other people, and who who I see deferring to whom. Another participant said that she now recognizes how much benign racism is a part of her world, even though many many of us um, have done so many things to try to structure our world so that we are involved in a a lot of different kinds of organizations and different kinds of social justice work for different kinds of um, clubs or activities, sometimes it's really easy to stay in your own bubble of of whiteness. We spent a lot of time talking about the concept of microaggression, which is kind of the the insidious constant put-down that people of color often feel in our society. At the congregation, we read the book the new Jim Crow which really talked about the issues of the criminal justice system and mass incarceration. And I think more than anything, Sharon, people are realizing that they're going to feel uncomfortable and that feeling uncomfortable is a necessary part of any change that's going to happen to make our communities more just.
0: What is the what are the changes that you've that you've seen so far?
1: Well, it was very interesting. We had a, a cohort in 2012-13 and 2013-14, and, you know, this summer after Ferguson, in September, I began here, well, in August, after after the events in Ferguson unfolded, people from the Beloved Conversations cohorts began emailing me and texting me and saying, what what are we going to do about this? We, we need to come together. So it was very gratifying for me to see that... The responses of people in the Beloved Conversations group, um, it, I didn't send out an email saying, look, we've got to do something. It wasn't staff-driven. It, it was layperson-driven that that we need to get together, we need to talk about this. And so we had some meetings. Um, people, people wrote things to, to put in our church newsletter. People were talking about how they were stepping up and having very uncomfortable conversations with people at work, with family members about how they felt about Ferguson, we did a workshop called Serial Witness just last month to try to create a very safe space for people in the beloved Conversations group to come together to just share their feelings about the fact that um, black men are killed at such an alarming rate in our society. And so many of them said that they don't have a space other than our church right now where they can talk about things that that are very painful and really bothering them. We're meeting to craft a very definite statement for our congregation about how we want to be um, a, a justice-seeking, the, the beloved conversation cohorts want want to make this congregation a place that is justice-seeking and affirming for people of color To to feel that they're heard and listened to and respected. There's so much personal work that happens, Sharon, in every day. I mean, people people were talking about conversations they have in elevators with people they don't they don't even know very well, but when they hear someone making a racist remark, they're not silent anymore. And I think this is part of that benign racism when when we are silent when we hear or see things happening. And people are feeling more able to get involved in those everyday instances that slowly create change.
0: And when they're uh, making that point, when they come across, you know, a racist remark, and you're, and you're speaking of even the microaggressions, then they're willing to speak out now.
1: They're willing to speak out and they're willing to, to understand that being uncomfortable about speaking out is part of the process. And so I think they're owning that uncomfortableness and they're owning that um, the person that they're speaking to may not necessarily agree with them, but they're not keeping silent as they have said they might have before. They might have disagreed, that they weren't sure what to say or how to say it. Um, and so we, we talk about that.
0: So you've eliminated some of the fear around speaking out.
1: We have eliminated some of the fear, but I would also say that, um, you know, al- allowing allowing someone, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable when we speak out is a very important part of the process. And I think there's there's a lot of fear among well-meaning folks that they're going to say the wrong thing. It's not going to come out quite the right way. And so one thing we talk about is, well, we're all going to make mistakes, but working through our fear of saying the wrong thing and continuing to keep speaking out is a very, that's, that's the only way we're going to improve. So you're going to have to be okay with knowing that sometimes you're, maybe you're going to say the wrong thing, but you have to keep doing. it.
0: So can you elaborate on what the micro, some examples of microaggressions, because I'm also thinking as we recognize in ourselves what these microaggressions are, that too, I would think, helps us be able to say, okay, I'm doing this, so let me speak out about this when I hear someone else do it.
1: Um, Yes, and it was very interesting. With the microaggressions, I don't know if you thought, and I can send you the link to this, but there was a wonderful photo exhibit Um, There were college students in New York City, and I can't remember which university, I know it was an NYU, who had actually taken um, photos of students of color holding up sheets of paper with all of the different racial slurs or comments that they had been told as part of their, their college education. And... So we we blew up these photos and we hung them as an art show for our congregation before we did our final beloved conversation worship service. So so for example, there's a photo of a um, young African-American man with a black leather jacket smiling and he's holding up the sign saying, you don't act like a normal black person, you know? Or there's a Biracial girl holding a sign that that this is a question she gets all the time. What are you? Meaning, uh, you know, she gets that question. What are you? Meaning that being biracial isn't isn't a, a who. It's a it's a what. Or um, there's another photo of an Asian American girl holding a sign that says, "So, what do you guys speak in Japan?" Just assuming that because she's American-Asian that she must be from Japan. So we talked about all of these stereotypes and these constant questions that, that people of color might get about their identity and how, how insidious it is and how we can speak up for people or help educate people that those, how inappropriate those questions are, even mm-hmm. though they might be so common. And I think I think that was eye-opening for people.
0: Right. And it's not just, I mean, it extends to any ethnicity, really. Oh, absolutely. You can make a comment and you're not, yeah, you're not realizing you're making those comments either sometimes. They're so, you know, loosely said.
1: They're so in, in, ingrained in us because if, if white is always the norm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's hard for white people to understand that that is that. That we are coming from a place of privilege, right? For everybody else, and so it—you have to keep chipping away at that concept.
0: So, does it also? I mean, can we turn it around where the African Americans there also can say microaggressions towards white people? You know, it, it can go back and forth, can it? <laughs>
1: Um, I think it definitely. I mean, it, it can go back and forth, but um, in my opinion, um, white people are firmly. We have such a firm place of privilege, but it, it's not really a microaggression when someone who is marginalized or opp- or oppressed is making a comment against the the privileged majority. What is it then? Um, it's people who are oppressed speaking out. Okay.
0: How long have they been doing the Beloved Conversations?
1: Let's see. We are we are in our, our third year now. We, so we have two cohorts, and now that we are in our third year, um, the two cohorts are working together on projects. And I think the Beloved Conversations program itself is four years old. So there have been congregations all around the country who have been engaging in this. And each congregation, you know, UU congregations are so different. Each congregation um, handles it. You know, we all do the same curriculum, but there are different outcomes based on the needs and the focus of the different congregations.
0: And so what do you see is going to be the big impact, you know, in the future, if you can foresee into the future? What do you envision?
1: I would say that um, everyone who has gone through the program now has had a very definite shift in their thinking. Everyone who went through the program from our congregation was white. We had some um, people of color who were facilitators who helped co-facilitate it, That everyone who went to the program as a non-facilitator was white. And I can definitely say that there, there have been very direct shifts in their thinking about who they are as a white person, what their role as a white person is to speak out about racism, to understand issues of race and privilege at a much, much deeper level. And um, so I think that it's not just about what's going to change in the congregation, but in a very good UU way, it's how are they also going to be taking these new insights into all of the work they do in the community, in their jobs, at school, raising their kids.
0: And what about the, you're going to create, is it an impact statement?
1: You know, we actually haven't decided exactly what the statement is going to be called, but we're sitting down to craft a a statement that will be um, delivered to the board and the congregation to talk about what the Beloved conversation group would like to make sure that our congregation stands for in terms of being anti-racist, anti-oppressive, and open and welcoming, and we're in the process of it, Sharon. I wish I could tell you more, and I can certainly share the statement when it's done. We hope to have it done by the spring. I'm sure it will take a couple meetings to go through, but really, kind of our hopes for the openness of this congregation.
0: Right, and then if once you have that statement, is that something that you would then publicize and you know kind of let let everyone know this is where we stand? Yes. Great. Oh, that'll be wonderful. What do you think is the biggest challenge you face with doing beloved conversations?
1: I think spiritually. I mean, there's a there are theological underpinnings. This is the reason why we're doing it in in a faith community, not at our public library. Um, spiritually, there are a lot of emotions about. Um, there, there can be guilt and shame and anger. So I think providing a very safe, trusting, we use the term learning container for people to, to be in as they grapple with those feelings, because we, we start with how you were raised and how, how we were all raised and the racism that we learned from our communities, from our families, from our societies. So it's peeling back all those layers and it can be a very painful process and so allowing people to work through all of those emotions in a very safe place and continue to link it to what our religious values are. We want to end up in a place of hope because our theology talks about the importance of hope and love. Those are our core tenets of Unitarian Universalism, and those are core tenets of, of creating a beloved community, but it's not easy to get there, and a lot of people would rather not explore some of those very painful emotions, so it's, it's providing a, a counterpoint of the, the darkness and the light to help people get through this so that we can... Make some changes in the world.
0: Well, and it sounds like you've made it a safe place. If you've had two cohorts to go through so far, so and do you plan on having a third one? Well,
1: there there are budget constraints because it costs. Um, there there is a a fee for the program, um, a fee to have doctor picks come out. So that that's that's, um, that's a budget question that our congregation will have to grapple with.
0: All right. Well, what um, do you have any links that people could go to to learn more about this? Uh, yes, I can, I can certainly
1: make sure that you have links to the FOS Collaborative, and I think that would be very, very helpful, and um, certainly links to our congregation. And if people have any questions, they can um, email me or text me or call me.
0: All right, and we'll provide those in the show notes then. That'll be great. Um, Well, thank you, Rena. Um, I've really enjoyed learning more about the Beloved Conversations. I know I've heard bits here and there uh, from uh, my wife, Amy, so I've gotten to know a little bit about it, and it's been very intriguing. So I appreciate you uh, enlightening everyone else uh, on this subject.
1: Well, if we have a cohort three, Sharon, I will be sure to let you know about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I'll join in on that one. (laughs) Definitely. Good, good. (laughs) Now that I know more, you know, it's like yes, I'll get in on that. (laughs) Good. So, Rena, can can you give us um, a quote that you are inspired by in your life?
1: I am. This this was a quote that I learned in seminary when I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, who many many people will know, um, was imprisoned during Nazi Germany for um, many, many things, but um, trying to take down Hitler was one of them. The, the quote is, examine yourself first, and um, I'm, I tend to be a very introspective person, and I think it's very important that people examine their own motives for the work that they are doing in the world and be very clear and sure about their own motives before they engage with other people. Um, I, I think it's important for everyone to look at what their part in any relationship is, and so I've always, um, I've always been inspired by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is a quote of his that um, I think about every day.
0: Well, and certainly carrying out beloved conversations really attests to that too, <laughs> it does. and how it you're does. spreading it to others. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, one last question that I like to ask ask everybody and uh, have you answer. The question is, how is Unitarian Universalism, as a religious denomination, uniquely positioned to serve and impact society?
1: Well, one thing that I'm very proud about in terms of Unitarian Universalism is that we have the courage to take on issues that can be very divisive. And I'm thinking about Um, race relations, I'm thinking about immigration policy, I'm thinking about issues with the LGBT community, and just continuing to put ourselves out there saying that each person is important, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Um, There are so many disparities in our society, and, and I'm very drawn to Unitarian Universalism because we can continue to work for the marginalized and to give voice to the marginalized and to to say look at the humanity, look at the creativity, look at the person in each of these voices. And I just think that that, that to me is is really the bedrock of our faith is, is looking at every person as an individual and every person as a child of God and every person Having very, very ha- having an important place in our world.
0: Great, thank you very much. Uh, well, Rena, thanks for being with us and for sharing what you what you've given us about the beloved conversations and about who you are. I wish you wish you good luck finishing the seminary and uh, continuing that and working inside of the community.
1: Thank you so much, Sharon. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. All right, great. Thank you.